From the studios at WMFE in Orlando, Florida, this is the podcast Exploring Space Exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. If you want to live on Mars, you'll have to eat bugs. That's according to new research published by a team of University of Central Florida scientists in the journal New Space. Companies like SpaceX are trying to send the first colonists in the next decade. For that, UCF planetary scientist Kevin Cannon says they'll have to produce much of their own food. Agriculture like grain, wheat, and corn requires a lot of land and additional resources like soil, water, and fertilizer. Bugs require a lot less. I spoke with Cannon about his research. We began the conversation talking about what a Mars colony will look like and what resources it will need. Yeah, so I mean, I think it's it's going to evolve kind of organically. Um, I think you really start small. You'd have, you know, the first ship that lands, that would be where you're living. Um, and then as you get more people, you start to um, actually, you know, construct things, get some architecture going, power plants, water processing facilities, um, and it would kind of expand um, according to, you know, the people in the companies who are, are actually going there uh, mm-hmm. and what they want. And we're having this conversation now because of companies like SpaceX that are saying they want to colonize Mars, you know, in mass, right? We're talking not tens of people, but hundreds of people, right? Right, right. And that's kind of the difference between what NASA's thinking of. So they're thinking of, uh, you know, you send maybe a small crew, four to six people, uh, sometime in the, the late 2030s, early 2040s. Uh, they go down to the surface for a few hundred days and, and come back. And there's a big contrast with what SpaceX wants to do, which is to establish a permanent presence um, to grow a population over time and actually build a city. And, you know, they're moving very quickly. We've seen them actually building and testing the ships that, that are going to do that. Um, and those could be launching to Mars within two to three years, I think is something that, that people should should take seriously. Mm-hmm. So something you look at in in this piece, which is called Feeding One Million People on Mars, is food supply, right? right. Because conventional kind of ideas for food is not going to feed all of those people. Tell me a little bit about how this question arose and, and, and how you went to solve it. Yeah, so what what we kind of found is that there's a huge disconnect between what's being worked on now, um, which is mostly kind of, you know, small hydroponic systems where you're growing lettuce and tomatoes. These are kind of foods that are, you know, 98, 99% water, so they're really not providing calories. Um, so if you want to have a population that grows over time to a large number, we you know chose a million. Um, and if you if you want to have that that settlement be self-sustaining or self-sufficient, then you can't just bring packaged food from Earth, and you can't rely on you know these stuff like lettuce and tomatoes. You really have to produce calories locally on Mars. And bringing the food would just cost too much in fuel, right? Right. So the the concept of uh, there's this concept of in situ resource utilization or ISRU, and the whole idea is that you know it's very expensive to launch all the stuff you're going to need uh, from Earth to get it out of the gravity well, and so the more you can make use of local resources, whether it be on the Moon or Mars, um, that's going to save you a lot of money um, in terms of of being able to you know set up a a city or or um, industrialize space. Mm-hmm. So you said the kind of thinking that NASA has these hydroponics, mostly water, not a lot of calories. What's the proposed solution then? How, how are you going to feed one million people? Right. And I think, you know, we, sh- 
we're not really trying to criticize NASA because that that kind of fits what their mission profile looks like, right? They would bring short package food, right? Right. Um, so what what our solution was was to look at three different things. So we looked at plant based foods, and we're focusing more on really you know kind of high calorie like grain crops, uh, so things like corn, sweet potatoes. Um, you know, we we didn't make like a detailed menu or anything. That's kind of we're leaving that up for for the future. Um, but so plants are 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 an obvious one to start with. That's what the most work has been done on. Um, and then we also looked at insect-based foods, which is something that you know has this kind of gross factor mm-hmm. or unfamiliarity, at least in in North America and Europe. In other parts of the world, it's it's quite common. Um, people are you know it's, it's a small part of people's diet um, to to eat insect-based foods. But it turns out that that insects um, it, they just they require a very small amount of land. Um, and and kind of care and attention compared with plants. Um, mm-hmm. So it's it's a very good fit for Mars, and it's also a good fit for you know trying to be more sustainable and environmentally friendly on Earth. So there are a lot of companies right now trying to introduce um, insect-based foods as commercial products. So things like protein bars, chips, mm-hmm. cr- crackers, things like that. Um, so that was the second one, and then the third one was uh, something called cellular agriculture or. Uh, other people have called it clean meat. And the idea is that you're producing something that's exactly the same as meat products, but you're growing them from cells in a vat um, as opposed to, you know, raising and slaughtering animals. So it's a way to have, you know, the same meat and fish sources um, that you eat now, uh, but to do that in in a way that's that's more ethical. Um, and it also saves on, you know, land use, water, etc. And I think this is something that's uh, there's actually a, there's a lot of companies working on this, particularly in the U.S. and in Israel, actually. Um, and this is something that you know I think people have heard of maybe the Beyond Burger, mm-hmm. um, the Impossible Burger, but this cultured meat I think is coming right behind that. Um, there's a lot of money being put into uh, developing this technology and, and bringing costs down. I want to go into those three little areas a little more in detail. So talking mm-hmm. about the the plants. We're not we're not talking about like the lettuce that we've seen grown on the International Space Station. You said like corn and wheat. Um, anyone who watched the movie The Martian knows that there might be a difficult in in kind of cultivating that in Martian regolith. How do you how do you grow these crops on the red planet? Yeah, so you have you you kind of have a a major choice to make whether you try and grow things in the soil itself. Or do you use techniques on Earth like hydroponics, aeroponics that that don't require soil? Um, and I think there's there's more work to be done to kind of uh, to look at the trade-off between those two. I think based on some work we've done and some collaborations with with NASA and other folks, it's going to be pretty tough to grow stuff in the soil as it is. You would have to transform it. Um, which is, you know, what we saw a little bit in the Martian, right? Mm-hmm. Adding fertilizer. I think you'd actually have to do a lot more than that. Um, the the soil on Mars is quite dense and 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 kind of hard packed, whereas soils on Earth, you know, mm-hmm. are loose and and uh, much more conducive for pl- for plant. That's growth. a factor because the roots can't grow and in- right. right. Exactly. Exactly. So I think it, it would be easier to start with something like a hydroponic system. Now that requires bringing more stuff because you have to set up trays and pumps and and all that. Um, but you kind of have the confidence that it's going to work right away. Um, there's less unknown. And I think maybe you could start then some experiments 
um, looking at, okay, how, what, what, what can we do to Mars soil to make it amenable for plant growth? Um, and maybe you would have, you know, like gardens or green spaces, um, but not necessarily growing your, your calorie crops in, in the soil itself. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, bugs. Tell me yeah. about how you would farm <laughs> bugs on Mars. Yeah, so this is, um, what's cool is that people are, are working on this on Earth. So there are, um, it's pretty common in, in like Southeast Asia. They have a lot of insect farms. And then what people are doing in the U.S. is, is applying, you know, uh, kind of uh, looking at it from like a tech company perspective. So people are trying to implement uh, robotics and AI and automation. And so there are companies that are building these huge warehouses where you just have, you know, stacks and stacks of cricket containers. Um, and they're fed by these robots that kind of, you know, go up and down the aisles and, and dispense feed. And, and so everything's automated. It's very low maintenance. And I think that would be, you know, a pretty easy thing to set up um, on Mars or on the moon. And the other, the real advantage there is that... Um, you're using so much less land than mm -hmm. you would for, for plants in particular. And the reason that's important is because, you know, land on Mars, it's not, it's not really the same as land on Earth because you have to enclose a volume of space. You have to heat it, pressurize it, light it. Um, and so that's going to be a huge constraint. Mm -hmm. um, and that leads you to look at, you know, these options like insects and and uh, cellular agriculture. What do the insects eat? What do you feed these buggers? Yeah, so I mean... You can feed them a variety of stuff, um, uh, things like, you know, just like vegetables and fruits. And you can kind of get away with, you know, things like spoiled f food products. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's it's more sustainable in that way. If, if you have, you know, some natural food spoilage, you can kind of shunt that and use that to feed your insects and kind of create this more of this like a circular um, economy for, for food production. Mm -hmm. We were talking on the way in. You've tried some bug products, right? What does what does it taste like? Yeah, so because um, it's not you wouldn't just eat the bugs, right? You could, well, you could, right? Right, yeah. People do. There's a whole range. Mm -hmm. So I mean, you know, you can take kind of just raw crickets, mm -hmm. you know, fry them up, add spices, vegetables, and then people do that. Um, what a lot of companies are doing, particularly in in North America and Europe, is they're grinding the insects up into like a flour, mm -hmm. um, and then using that. Uh, some people use that as like a protein powder. Um, or they bake it into recipes, so they they make protein bars, um, cookies, chips, things like that. So I've I've tried some of the chips. There's a company called Chirps. Um, they do they do <laughs> chips, um, and I've tried some of the protein bars. And I mean, really, if you didn't know, you you mm -hmm. you wouldn't tell that you wouldn't be able to tell that you're you're eating insects when they're in that you know kind of processed form mm -hmm. like that. And yeah. I've got to assume that you could just bring a small amount with you, and they would you know reproduce it at, at, at a pretty rapid rate, right? Yeah, yeah, and that would be, you know, the advantage over. It, it, it'd be hard to imagine bringing something like a cow to mm -hmm. Mars, right, and keeping it happy on, you know, nine months of zero gravity. But I think, you know, having a an insect colony would be uh, a lot more straightforward. Mm -hmm. And I think people have done. Um, I think people have taken things like ants up to the space station and mm -hmm. and you know observed them in low gravity. So mm -hmm. I think that's pretty straightforward. What about smaller livestock? Could you? Did you? think about, you know, something like, you know, chickens or ducks or, you know, fowl or something like that? No, I mean, what the whole point of this was to kind of, you know, if we're setting up a settlement on Mars, we can kind of reflect and maybe, you know, take the best practices from Earth and, and get rid of some of the, 
the worst one. So I think you know the the ethics of of raising and slaughtering livestock is is um, is pretty questionable. I think if you're you know kind of having a do over to set up a settlement on Mars, I think personally that's something that I would want to do away with. Mm-hmm. Um, is is you know raising mammals for for slaughter. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about the the cellular agriculture because this is fascinating as well. What would this process look like uh, on a Mars colony? Yeah, so basically the, the idea is you take uh, you take a ce- you take a cell sample from an animal and right now people are starting with, you know, traditional um, cows, fish, things like that. But in theory you could actually take cells from any animal you want. Um, so if you know if you wanted like exotic animals, mm-hmm. you can take cells without killing the animal. And then what you do is you put it into uh, something called a bioreactor, which is kind of like a, a big stainless steel vat. And it's it, the cells are in a nutrient solution, and they basically grow and divide um, and build up you know, muscle tissue or, or fat. And the big thing people are working on right now is to try and get the texture of, of real meat. So um, people started with just like like a ground beef because that's easy to it doesn't really have much of a shape to it. But if you want to do something like a steak, then you really have to work on you know how do you like scaffold those cells together in, mm-hmm. in three dimensions and, and add marbling things like that. So that's really what's what's being worked on right now. And I think it would basically be the the same on Mars. You would you would have your cell cultures. You would have these these big stainless steel vessels, and you would be growing and dividing and then harvesting cells. Mm-hmm. Um, to create something that's really indistinguishable from from meat, mm-hmm. and you said work is is being done on that now, and and you know progressing, right? Right. Yeah. So there was we talked about in the paper. There's um, there's some publicity a few years ago. They made like the first um, cellular burger, and I think it costs something like three hundred thousand dollars to <laughs> to create one patty. And I think it's it's come down now. The price is something like ten or eleven dollars for. Still for not on the dollar menu, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. So I think the the first companies will will have products available by the end of this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and what they'll probably do is start with, you know, they'll be featured in restaurants. So they'll ha- they'll have like pop up stores. It'll be a while before it makes it to the grocery store shelves. Um, but I think this is something that's coming sooner than than most people realize. Mm-hmm. Based on on your research in this paper, can a colony on Mars be self sufficient and in enough time where they could stop relying on you know shipments from Earth you know relatively soon after getting there? Yeah, so I think um, I think it's going to take time, and I think what you're going to do is you you know you start out completely dependent on Earth on on resupply from cargo ships. And then the goal would be to slowly kind of wean yourself off. And so you, you would, you know, you would phase in local resources. So you start using, um, you know, the water on Mars in, in the form of ice instead of shipping it all from Earth. Uh, and so over time, you know, with, with food, you would, again, you would start with prepackaged food brought from Earth. And then as, as the settlement grows, you would try and, you know, produce a greater fraction of your calories locally as opposed to uh, relying on imported foods. Um, but yeah, so we, we kind of looked at some baseline numbers of, of like how many um, cargo resupply ships you would need over time. And you are talking about a, a lot of, of cargo transported to, to grow to a large colony. So something like um, tens of thousands of, of resupply ships. Um, but then eventually, hopefully, you you know, you kind of cut that down to, to basically zero. Mm-hmm. 
We talked about the food. You briefly mentioned some other things, resources that would be needed. I mean, what what else would would a, a Martian colony need to kind of source for itself um, on on Mars to survive? Yeah, so you can kind of start by thinking about you know what do we need to to survive um, just on a day to day basis. So the the most obvious thing is, would be you know breathable air, oxygen. Um, so that's available on Mars. Um, mostly in the form of either water, you could split the water um, into hydrogen and oxygen, um, or the, the CO2 atmosphere, you could capture that and, and, and split the oxygen off. Um, so breathable air, um, then obviously you want a source of water um, for life support and also to uh, produce things like propellant. Um, so there's lots of water available in, in various forms on Mars. Um, and then you would need things like, you know, construction material to, um, build habitats and, um, and, uh, you know, to kind of grow out a, a mm -hmm. city. Um, and, and what, what our kind of thinking was is that a lot of those things are fairly readily available and that food is actually the hardest one because, hmm. you know, there's nothing resembling food on Mars. Right. You can't, you can't have a. Uh, you know, a magic box that takes in dirt or air and turns it into food. Mm -hmm. And so that's actually going to be potentially one of the, the hardest challenges, which is uh, partly why we, we did this study. Mm -hmm. How far out is this? I mean, if, 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 you know, companies like SpaceX and visionaries like Elon Musk are, are targeting the 2030s for something like this to start, I mean, is it possible? Yeah. So I think actually they're targeting the 2020s. Okay. Um, so what's, you know, pe people often talk about this thing called Elon time, yeah. right? <laughs> that, that must whatever. have been what I was in. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, whatever his projections are, you know, you multiply them by... In, in the next two decades. Let's let's just give it a, a wide window there. Yeah, so I think they have a very real possibility of launching cargo ships to Mars within the next two to four years. And then I think you kind of get like a launch window to Mars mm -hmm. about every two years. Um, and so I think the following launch window they would be able to launch the first humans. Um, and again, that would be, you know, that would be a small start. That would be mm -hmm. maybe like a dozen people. Um, Who would primarily be relying on the supplies that they brought with them? Or right. is this... Is this yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. So then I think you're looking at, you know, um, if every launch opportunity after that, you bring in more ships, then you really start to build out, you know, a settlement. And then you could start to think about using local resources mm -hmm. more and more. And do you see yourself as one of these colonists? <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I I don't really think of that too much. Um, I've never applied for, like, the astronaut program. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, once it becomes once it becomes something that's routine and, you know, you could go there for, uh, you know, you could go there for a vacation or, you know, I think some people will choose to just, uh, just up and move to Mars. Um, so maybe, you know, maybe in the far future when it's kind of a routine flight, then, uh, that's something that I would, yeah. I would look into. I'm right there with you. Yeah. <laughs> well, we've been speaking with Kevin Cannon. He's a planetary scientist at the University of Central Florida. His paper, Feeding One Million People on Mars, is published in the most recent journal, New Space. Kevin, thanks for speaking with us. Great. Thank you. It's now time for a segment we like to call I'd Like to Know, where we take your questions and pose them to a panel of expert scientists. We're joined today by University of Central Florida planetary scientists and hosts of the podcast Walk About the Galaxy, Addie Dove, Jim Cooney, and Josh Caldwell. Today, 
a question from Bob in Orlando. Bob wants to know about space movies. What does Hollywood get right, and what does it get wrong? Josh Caldwell kicks off the conversation. I'll chime in. Okay, Josh. <laughs> Big surprise to my co-host here. Uh, I have a personal attach- attachment to the movie Deep Impact, mm-hmm. uh, available on Blu-ray and DVD, uh, <laughs> because uh, I was a science advisor on that movie, and uh, they actually did pay attention to the technical consulting uh, they got a lot of things right. Of course, they took some liberties. Mm-hmm. Um, and the things they got right that a lot of movies don't get right is they paid attention to what is the gravitational environment like on the surface of a comet. Uh, this is a movie where astronauts go to a comet that's on a collision course with the Earth to try to stop it from hitting the Earth. They did a very good job in, of depicting what the comet would be like, uh, the surface of the comet, and what the environment would be like on the surface of the comet. Did a very good job of depicting the wave, the tsunami produced by the impact of that. The most obvious thing they got wrong, which we pointed out that to them right off the bat. That was a big spoiler What? That the, There's the a big comet, tsunami. <laughs> I if you think haven't it's seen actually, it, now. It's actually on the movie poster <laughs> yeah. that there is a giant wave. So I think, I think I'm okay on that front. The biggest thing they got wrong, I would say the most prominent thing they got wrong, is you wouldn't actually send astronauts to a comet to do this job. You would do it with a robotic mission of some sort, or there are various techniques you could use to divert an asteroid or a comet from hitting the Earth, and they're going to be much more feasible and much more reasonable to do without involving people. Mm-hmm. That's what, very difficult. What would, what would Bruce Willis have done then? Yeah. Bruce Willis was in Armageddon, oh. the antithesis of deep impact <laughs> and scientific realism. And we should say, Josh, you have a very personal connection to deep impact, not because you just advised, but you are also an actor. In it. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. So deep impact, that's what they got right. Uh, Jim, do you have an example of when Hollywood did it right? So my... Favorite movie of recent years, and this is this is an opinion not shared by my co-host, is, is uh, Interstellar. Interstellar was uh, they 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 took some issues with some of the storytelling, perhaps, but the science there was beautiful. At least a subset of the science they did go off the rails towards the end, and Love played some kind of scientific role and all that kind of stuff. But uh, they did the the relativity right, so uh, the general relativity where they the time and space are warped near a black hole. Spoiler: there, There's a big black hole in the movie Interstellar, <laughs> uh, but they got the look of the black hole just right. In fact, they did a better job of visualizing what a black hole is in that movie than we ever have done before. Because they had so much money to do it, mm-hmm. including um, even professional scientific visualizations. That's right. Uh, yeah, real. I mean, they they used Kip Thorne, who won the Nobel Prize uh, just a couple of years ago. They used him and his equation, not his equations, but Einstein's equations, led by Kip Thorne, there to visualize the black hole. It was wonderfully visualized. It was perfect. And they did the time stuff right. So that's a really key, interesting plot point in that movie: is how time runs differently when you're close to a massive object when they get near this black hole. And they did all of that. Uh, wonderfully well in that movie, just precisely as it would actually be. And to me, it was a, it was, you know, it was wonderfully well done scientifically, and it actually worked for the plot and made me. I cried in that movie. Yeah, and a deep impact, by the way. <laughs> that that makes me cry. <laughs> Addie, what did Hollywood get right? Uh, my favorite thing to talk about right now is The Expanse. Uh, okay. So it's a TV show. Um, I guess it's on Prime now. But The Expanse is a show that uh, is based on sort of a not-too-distant future, right? And there are folks who are doing space mining. Um, They're living in the asteroid belt. People live on... There's a Mars colony, Mars civilization. Um, And so there's a lot of interesting sort of dynamics of the sort of near-future market. But they do a lot of things like how people's... uh, 
biology and how their spines change, for instance, right? If you grow up in a low gravity environment um, and they do a lot of some of the visualizations of like how you'd have to pour something in a low gravity environment or like there was one where there was some blood that sort of was in the room all of a sudden for reasons uh, and it was in droplets, right? And then as soon as there was some sort of force, it like it, it moved the way it should have. Mm-hmm. So they do really, they re- have done really good job of like, getting the actors to understand how to sort of move your body a little bit better in low gravity environments and how they would accommodate these different types of things. Okay. What'd they get wrong? Well, in interstellar. No. <laughs> we'll say that uh, I think this is one that the, the three of us all agree on. One of the big things they do wrong is they fail to understand scales and distances. Oh my gosh. Yeah. This, this really gets Josh <laughs> riled up and maybe I'll let him go off on this in just a second. But basically in any of these movies, you know the, the scale of things, the size of a planet, or the different, uh, the distance between a sun and its planet is so radically different from the distance between a star and another star, or something like that. that they just have no concept of this in these movies, and you, they travel anyway. Josh, you want to go off? <laughs> well, I can see the anger I mean... <laughs> boiling up in your eyes. Yeah, the the J.J. Abrams series of Star Trek movies, or the the recent Star Trek movies, are a classic example of. Everything is an hour away from everything else, regardless of what it is. So mm-hmm. they're racing from Earth to a planet around another star, and it takes about an hour to get there. And they just sort of happen to like, oh, it's an emergency. We need to stop right now. And they stopped a thousand kilometers early, which would sort of be like you're in a racetrack racing around the oval at Daytona. And you decide, oh, my gosh, I've got an emergency. I've got a slam on the brakes. And you stop one hair's width short of the finish line. There's just no recognition mm-hmm. of how big an empty space is and the difference in the distance, as Jim was saying, between planets and the other planets versus stars. And the issue with, you know, traveling through space is it's twofold, right? It's speeding up and slowing down in time, right? Well, yes. If we're already forgiving ignoring the (laughs) fact that you can't travel faster than the speed of light and that the forces required to accelerate to those speeds are tremendous and that people would be plastered against the uh, bulkhead. Oh, there's a good thing in the expanse where they did that, actually. Jellified and all of that stuff. So I'll grant them all that. I want Kirk and Spock to be able to get to Klingon before the movie's over. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, we don't want to be waiting uh, thousands and thousands of years, right? Right, (laughs) right. But I'd like some internal Mm self-consistency. And Addie, what really grinds your gears when you think about Hollywood and their interpretation of space travel? I think one of the things that bothers me the most is not is sometimes not even the science so much as the depiction of the scientists or the people doing it it's often like a lone scientist that figures something out or all of the scientists are super weird uh ostracized people for instance right so like the depiction of how science is done um doesn't always actually represent how we work in groups and huge communities um i think somebody gave the example of in the most recent martian movie which was really good uh there's this like lower guy who's a dynamicist and he's like oh i'm gonna go talk to the chief of nasa and tell them how to do this mission differently and i'm gonna run these simulations and show him it's like that's not really how that works usually and so so things like that are frustrating just because it doesn't fully recognize the amount of work that all of us put in right Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) to figure things kind of things out is it getting better sometimes i think i mean i think the expanse that you were mentioning earlier is a perfect example of uh how things are getting better and part of that is enabled by computer graphics, the kinds of technology that wasn't available 20 or 30 years ago, 
to depict some of these things that's hard to do right mm -hmm. without actually going to the space environment. Um, different movies and different shows have different goals, though. Sometimes realism is not really even in the question of what they want to do. Mm -hmm. And I think the most important thing is what Addie was mentioning is if you depict scientists as real people and the scientific process uh, believably and realistically, that's more important than getting all the physics right, in my mm -hmm. opinion. That was Addie Dove, Josh Caldwell, and Jim Cooney, planetary scientists at the University of Central Florida. They also host the podcast Walk About the Galaxy. Check it out wherever you get this podcast or visit them online at walkaboutthegalaxy.com. And if you have a question for I'd Like to Know, send it in. Shoot me an email at arewetheryet at wmfe.org. You can send me a tweet. I'm at awtymars. Or find us on Facebook. Search for Are We There Yet Podcast. That's going to do it for this episode. Be sure to follow us on social media for the latest in space news. This podcast is a production of WMFE, and support comes from our listeners. Our theme music was composed by Kevin McLeod. For more space news, visit us online at wmfe.org space. And until next time, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. <laughs>